They grow weary of death. After eight star systems and 63 days, eight terrible deaths and eight painful resurrections for each of the four men, Father Captain DeSoya, Sergeant Gregorius, Corporal Key, and Lancer Reddick are weary of death and rebirth. Wheel of Genre, the podcast far casting between story to story in search of what we do not know. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm Jeff. Sure is a long book. <laughs> it goes. <laughs> so I started off, I loved it because it starts 300 years after Fall of Hyperion. I loved Hyperion. Fall of Hyperion was a slow start because it feels like we're just having the first book summarized to us and it takes half a book to get anywhere from there. This, I thought, oh, great. We are now getting into a, a strange road trip where three friends are going to go on an adventure like a video game it was fun for 20 minutes and then i was enraged and then i kept reading it and it kept going on but it was still fun in many parts so i feel conflicted because it's a little bit road trip adventure like the goofy movie and it's a little bit like seeing the goofy movie 10 times in a row yeah if the goofy movie had like a human pin cushion <laughs> Going around <laughs> yeah. with them, you know. What, what, so what really struck out to you in the first moments of pure glee? Like what, what made you happy about this book? There are many amazing set pieces. It's very much a world building book, which I'm not usually a fan of, but these worlds were quite thrilling. And seeing these friends get onto a raft going down a river, which is connected Farcaster to Farcaster to Farcaster. So when you go through one of these giant portals, you are suddenly in a totally different world. That was pretty exciting to see. I think my favorite part, they're not sure if it's going to work and it might kill them all because these things have been dead for many, many years, but they let Aenea through. So they let her friends through. Suddenly we go through this giant portal that is covered in moss, covered in vines. And when we emerge, we see three rising moons. That was thrilling. What do you think, John? I, I get the feeling by the look on your face that you have a, <laughs> a different reception to this. I just, yeah, I found it interminable <laughs> truly interminable it, I, I think i i just felt that i, I was not gripped from the beginning yeah. I, I, I feel like there was very little effort at the beginning of this book to develop the characters at all we kind of start with Rawl and demian who's in sort of schrodinger's cat box is he dead is he alive whatever i don't know then you know he's writing his journal essentially from there and he's saying no he's essentially going to tell the story of this so-called one who teaches that we get sort of previewed at the end of fall of hyperion which is braun lamia's daughter and you know he's anyway we, we, it's going to be about her but he's writing it from his time to him anyway so he, he, we're looking back on past events already now and then it goes to sort of a scene in which he's he is essentially living on hyperion the Farcasters have all been destroyed at the end of the previous book. So this whole sort of traveling to different worlds becomes quite a novel thing now. There's very few Farcasters left because most of them were destroyed by Minor Gladstone to try and essentially wipe out the Technocot, which, surprise, surprise, makes a big reappearance towards the end of the book. A bit, bit of a spoiler alert. but And then he, anyway, long story short, he kills a guy and ends up on, with a death sentence. Kangaroo caught, he's sentenced to death, but then somehow he wakes up after being having been killed, or a, he thought he would have been killed, and he's somehow been saved by Martin Salinas, who seems to be surviving after like multiple pulse and treatments, but he's very, very old, centuries and centuries old. Like he's still living 300 years later when the sort of narrative commences. And somehow, out of nowhere, randomly, I don't know, Endemian, we've picked you for some reason to go and pick up this girl, Aenea. We don't know why, just fucking do it. And uh, yeah, bring her back. And the Pax wants her. Why? We don't really know, but they're going to chase you. All right, cool. All right, safe. 
from that point forward, we get about 100 pages of just absolute nonsense, battles, X chip, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And then the flip rod hit the frigate and jigger, just nonsense jargon that I could not be bothered learning or keeping up with. I didn't care. I didn't need to see it. And then I think I think you just pick up a little bit after that once the journey begins, but then the journey continues and it gets the journey just happens again and again and again yeah. too. It's like the same sequence yeah. going on. So they're they're interesting things, yeah. kind of about four times. Yeah, four times. The, the the journey does have a kind of do I want to say point? You know, the, like what they get as they go on the journey is a kind of knowledge. So it's like the characters take us on a journey where they learn about how the universe has changed. And the non-Christians of this universe have been kind of genocided away by the Pax. But it's the readers coming to mm. that knowledge through the journey of these characters. It is, I don't want to say frustrating, but it is kind of samey, I do think, to have every time they go to a different world, they have to have some kind of action sequence or problem. To me, it felt yeah. kind of like the literary yeah. equivalent of The Legend of Zelda in the sense of like, Yes. You know, okay, yeah. now we're in the water temple and we got to solve the water temple problems. Now we're in the ice temple and we got to solve the ice temple problems, you know? Yeah. Um, that being said, I, I do think that there is something here. There's not nothing here. You know, there there is something here. What, what do you see here? Well, from a science fiction perspective, I think that it is interesting how most science fiction takes we'll say like a realist foundation and gives us a point of estrangement. We could, you know, we don't, we don't have to stray too far into examples. We all know what we mean. Like there's one, like science fiction gives us one speculative point that says, what if this was like that? And then we t spin our, 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 our tail. Yeah. With this book, I feel like we're so far away from reality that it's hard to even like, it almost feels like a fantasy novel. Yeah. But what, what this does yeah. do is it takes the previous books and estranges them. Like I, I feel like we've moved away from science fiction as a spin on the real world, and we say, okay, remember the last time we met this universe in the previous Dan Simmons books? What if everyone has the parasite now? What if, you know, since we destroyed Farcaster technology, what how do how do we travel from system to system? What if we have everyone continually you know, go when you go faster than light, you get ripped apart. And what if we use the parasites to rebuild ourselves? I think it's a interesting solution, kind of a banana solution to this problem that is, I mean, I don't want to say it's a real world problem, but it's a theoretical problem in physics of how to, you know, if we're going to try to go through space really quickly, how are we going to do that and have people survive? It's in conversation with the spaceship novel in science fiction, but it does this really interesting and impractical and fantastic solution for that problem. Hmm. Yeah. I think part of the difficulty of the book for me is this almost like, you know, you're just part of just, it's, it was most of it was just world building. He was just expanding the world of the Hyperion story. But like you say, from this sort of arbitrary point already to try and, you know, I think, I think it's just too far removed from reality to be engaging for me. Because we, we get very few of the actual characters from Hyperion. We see a little bit of Martin Silas at the beginning, but otherwise we're almost completely disconnected from that universe. And I just don't care enough. I just, I, didn't, I never bought into these characters at all. So I could never, I just didn't care about their, whether they lived or died in the ice. I just didn't care. Nothing in me cared. So it, that's what I think made this book sort of hard to enjoy mm -hmm. for me. And I, I just think it is just, there was a lack of investment at the beginning in these characters to me to just immediately get on with the plot and i think the plot could like it's a very short plot really isn't it mm -hmm. like he has to protect this girl 
they go through a few different uh, portals, running away from you know Father Captain Desire and later on Radamath Nemes, who comes along, and then in the end they encounter Nemes. It turns out to be some other kind of force from from I believe the lions and tigers and bears or some powerful force in the future that is sending the Shrike and has sent the Cruciforms. Uh, no, sorry, Technocor has sent the Cruciforms. But essentially, it's just a cat and mouse story mm-hmm. between. A girl getting pursued and the church, the Pax, who now rule the universe, trying to pursue her. But we're not given any investment at the beginning of like, well, what's the real reason we're pursuing them? Why should we care if she gets caught or not? What's at stake? And it's never clear what's at stake right at the beginning. There's this, I don't feel like there's not much at stake at the beginning. And the, the mission doesn't feel like intrinsic to any of the characters. It's just like they accidentally have to go on this mission for some random reason. It just structurally it didn't work in the beginning. And then it was far mm-hmm. too long. So do you feel like that was a failure in Dan Simmons and in thinking of that maybe because we've been so invested in the world previously? Yeah, I think he's taken for granted mm-hmm. that we give a shit about whatever happens afterwards. And I just don't think that for me, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Got it. It feels like it's something that could have been solved where when we have Dune, the first Dune book, we get to see inside everyone's head and we know the purpose of why people are getting to war. We get to see yeah. it's a lot of head hopping, which people have criticized, but at least I feel invested in each person, even the villains. I know why they want something. But I think Dune is much better, isn't it? Well, yeah. In that regard. You no, know, I'm saying Dune was successful and maybe this book could have benefited yeah, yeah. from that because Father DeSoya, he's not actually told. He just is told that Aenea is an abomination. And halfway through the book, we get a little bit more information, but not really that much more information. And it's not that enlightening. Then for the other side, Ania knows things and just isn't telling them to us or the other two characters. She seems to know a lot more about what's going on. She just, we're not told. It's a long car chase where I don't exactly know why either driver is driving, except for they don't want to come in contact with each other. You know what I think it is? I think... We talked about it a little bit in earlier episodes on, I think on the fall of Hyperion especially, where it, it kind of feels like Dan Simmons doesn't know where he's going with this as he's writing it. And there are occasionally, you know, these retcons that happen and we sort of think, is he just making this up as he goes along? It very much has that feeling to me. Whereas I think Dune is a successful book because you always got, always got the sense that he knew the whole thing going into it. And he says like he wrote the first book with the third book in mind. I don't get the same level of rigor and organization from Dan Simmons personally and i think the lack of continuity owes itself to that they run himself into a dead end and he has to just come up with some new world or something they're going to go to to solve the problem i just think it's it fails whereas i think with dune all the seeds are there in the first book that then maybe sprout in later books but we'd already been told about these tlx and then then we learn about the tlx so we care or the the continuity of paul over the first three books and meanwhile in the second book we get introduced to his son no no, sorry not a second book so in the mm-hmm. third book we get introduced to the son so then when the fourth one takes over we've already got that investment yeah. there so it the books could compound in significance and the universe felt like it, it was something that i had bought into i cared about because there was that continuity whereas here there's almost like hard break at the end of hyperion and it's boom new characters and i'm just like i don't care <laughs> who are these people I feel like talking about this in comparison to Dune is actually really helpful because the way Dune has been received by so many people is diminishing returns as the series goes on. As we leave behind the original characters, the readership drastically drops off. And I feel like a similar thing might be going on here. As we leave behind the original characters, you know, it's, it's harder to make the investment in new characters. 
yeah, so I feel like that is a that is a good comparison. I think John's really found the main issue, though. For Dune, those investments do compound. It's a compounding interest. So when you're getting through book six, even, you feel like, I really understand what Frank is trying to say here. And in Dan Simmons, it feels like it's just being spread too thin now. But we are learning more from what we were hoping to learn. And at the end of book two, we get a little bit more about what the Technocore is up to and what a world without Farcasters in connection looks like. So I do like that a lot, but I do feel still it's quite, quite murky. And I don't know if I've gotten what I hoped out of it by reading this book. I think I think the the reveal is murky at the end. And I think that hmm. maybe that's because this is structured as a two-part book. In the same way that there's Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion, there's Endymion and Rise of Endymion. And it's, you know, obviously it ends on a cliffhanger. It actually ends with them in Falling Water in Pennsylvania, which uh, yeah. was such a, I don't know. I, I just visited Falling Water and I was like, oh, we're here. We're, we're back here again. Did you go to the house? Yeah. yeah. It's a few hours away. Oh, what do you think? Funny. It's fantastic. Water damage is real. You know, they they seem to be struggling having built a house in the middle of a river. Right. So for anyone listening, Falling Water, where they end up is Frank Lloyd Wright's house that is built on top of a waterfall. And it's like the structure of the house itself is like kind of built into the waterfall as a natural feature. I think in terms of architecture, it's obviously more of like a proof of concept than anything that anyone could actually live in. And they actually talk about this within the book. There's a number of things in it. Like, what do they mention? They built a wine wine skin yeah, in the wall that is actually painted with lead paint. So if you were to actually drink wine from it, you know, of course you get lead poisoning, things like that, where it's like, it's a proof of concept, but the details kind of haven't been tightened up or there were some oversights and, you know, in the design of it, but that's neither here nor there. I thought that was an interesting, you know, in previous books, when we've gone to old earth, we've gone to Rome and it's felt very like classical culture, you know, kind of like a worship of the literary romantics. And here we find ourselves in, you know, modernity. Modern North America mm-hmm. is where they find themselves. And it's it's interesting how he seems to hold these two on the same plane, on the same field, playing field. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of the, the sort of DNA of Hyperion as well. Of You know, we're going to assess it in the future, but we're going to have all these sort of wink-wink references for those in the know to the past, particularly Old Earth's past, so-called. You know, And, and the, the nostalgia for Old Earth continues in this book. You know, ultimately, they're trying to find old Earth, which has been moved initially, thought just sucked into a black hole. But now it seems that the lions and tigers and bears have conspired to take it somehow for some reason that nobody understands. Like the technical doesn't even understand if I'm if I'm following this plot correctly. And the packs are really just puppets for the technical. So that's where we end up, really. But we also end knowing what Ania will do or what role she will serve in the next book. She that she's we're told at the beginning that she's going to be one who teaches. And that's what Rawl knows about her. And that's why everyone's after her. But now she confesses to being the teacher of the calculus of love. We talked about that being kind of BS. Dan Simmons's idea from last book where Saul Weintraub finds that the thing that bonds everything together, the force underneath all of this connection is love. And now Ania apparently knows quite a bit about this calculus she says it's not measurable, it's not mechanical, but it is a underlying force and she is going to teach it. And she might also be the empathy that is sent back in time, that she's connected to that somehow. 
So we learned that she is going to be very important in the last book, but we're still not exactly sure why she's going to be very important in the last book. And we learn a lot about Nemes, who is also unclear. Her role now, too, is very ambiguous. If she is... Very reminiscent of Moneta, I think. They seem the same species, yeah. almost. I mean, I know Moneta is Rachel, but it's sort of a Rachel, I don't know, has been through some changes. Yeah. Moneta slash Rachel is clearly in league with the ousters. And Radamath Nemes is clearly in league with the Pax and Technocore. So they seem to be serving similar functions in a kind of like femme, war machine, badass type thing. But but I think that they're polar opposites. You know, they're foils to each other. What I like about this book is how it takes the previous two narratives and it doesn't take them at face value. It says, those are the poem those those are the myth of this universe. We only mm. know about the events through a poem, yeah. which allows the author to do this really mm. interesting move of addressing the critics to his previous two books. There's a quote here yeah. having to do with love, or rather those lines about love that Saul Weintraub gets to. Quote, the almost universal reaction to the poem, according to Grandam, was that it was weakened by this sentimentality. Ania was shaking her head. Uncle Martin was right. So- like Dan Simmons knows that we we don't buy into this whole thing of like love is everything, but he wants us to see that he's not going to back down from it. He gives us this other quote, this time from Aenea. The Greeks saw gravity at work, but explained it as one of the four elements, Earth, rushing back to its family. What Saul Weintraub glimpsed was a bit of the physics of love, where it resides, how it works, how one can understand and harness it. The difference between God is love And what Saul Weintraub saw, and what Uncle Martin tried to explain, is the difference between the Greek explanation of gravity and Isaac Newton's equations. One is a clever phrase, the other sees the thing itself. So its I don't think I've ever seen an author do this. hes In the third book, he's kind of packaged up his old work as an in-universe thing, and is giving the critics, the real-world critics, a voice within the universe of the book— and he's arguing against the critics within the narrative. Yeah, that is well done. That is nicely done. Now, I don't know if he argues successfully. You know, I'm still not, ne- I'm, it's still not yeah. necessarily clear to me how the point of this book is anything more than God is love. I mean, I, I get it in a linguistic sense that, you know, oh, love is the fourth or, or fifth, I think it's the fifth force in the universe. But like, what does that actually mean? It still remains to be seen. Well, it it does seem like this Dan Simmons loved to just throw an occasional chapter where he'll just have a mouthpiece character, in this case, Father Glaucus, just to rant about Taylor de Chardin for a bit whenever, I don't know, whenever he feels like it by the sounds of it. I was actually Googling about uh, Dan Simmons earlier. Apparently, he's kind of a, kind of gone off the deep end on in some alt-right shit. And he does have that tendency to start of write his manifesto a little bit in these books. And I think that that is one case of it. But you understand Taylor much better than better than I do, so you can verify how good an assessment I, I think, that it was. Uh, you know, I, so I after after reading uh, the first couple of these books, I went out and read Taylor Deschardin, and I think Dan Simmons does a perfectly reasonable spin on it. I mean, Taylor Deschardin obviously isn't talking about artificial intelligence or technology, despite the quote in this book where Dan Simmons gives us a random letter of Taylor Deschardin where. Taylor Chardin does seem to imply that technology is part of this whole thing. But in the canon works, in the primary works, Chardin isn't really speaking about technology at all. You understand he could be, but you know, it's it's more about human consciousness. Yeah. But but I do like I do like him manifestoizing Chardin in this book. And I think that 
This is actually Dan Simmons' superpower, I guess we'll say, in the sense of, I think that he's a very competent workman. Despite everything we've said so far, I think Dan Simmons is the kind of writer who sits down at his desk from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. in the morning, and he says, I am going to write. And on some days you have inspiration, and other days you don't have inspiration. And I think that what he has is he has created an outline. We're going to go from here to here. We're going to go from here to here. Our villains are going to be this and our heroes are going to be this, but then we're going to whip swap who's the villain and introduce a new real villain, you know, Terminator style. You know, he's he's got the whole thing plotted out and he's just filling in the stuff. He's just, you know, he's just doing the work. But I think that where Dan Simmons excels is when he takes things that he's been reading elsewhere and is able to pepper them into the narrative and kind of like give us give us a little bit of what Dan Simmons really thinks when he's not just pretending to be the genre craftsman pretending is a hard word when he's not wearing the genre craftsman hat you know tell us a little bit more about what Dan's really thinking about that's that's where he excels and I actually do you know I I know you're citing this is a success but I do think this contributes to why this book doesn't have buy-in at least from me because I don't, I don't think the veil between the the fiction and his him as a writer is is sort of well hidden enough. Like he's always, you know, since he likes to use sort of a Wizard of Oz type metaphor references in his work, he kind of is like the wizard behind the curtains, but it's a little bit. He's not he's not far enough behind the curtains. I don't <laughs> think. So you'll be reading the book and you'll just be like, oh, and then this John Keats poem, doesn't it? And you're sitting there thinking like, oh, you just read that, didn't you? He's like, peeking out at you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, oh, you want to talk to me about Shardine again? Go on then. <laughs> that is, it's, do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like seamless. Yeah. It, it, I think that's where it falls apart for me. It's, it feels a little bit too superficial. I, I, I just don't have faith in him as an author. I think it's almost like a horse that gets frightened. Like as as an as a reader, like I want to know that the 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 person leading me is it knows what they're doing. And at times, I just think he's making this shit up, and I just that loses me a little bit. I'm like, oh, right, you're just making sure. But it doesn't feel like coherent to me in, in a sort of large sense. And I agree, it does feel like he said, we're going to go from point A to point B. We're going to have these people here. But then as he's writing, it feels like he just goes off on tangents and sort of gets bogged down in the weeds. And he's like, oh, no, I've got to come up with another story here. And I think that is his failing rather than his uh, sort of an attribute of his. But it can make some fun reading, I guess. But About ice ice caves, ice versions of Dune. The Chardin stuff is really interesting in this because we get to the point of talking about the Omega point idea. And Glaucus, like you said, the little headpiece here, the mouthpiece, starts talking about how he believes, we can't know for sure, but Teilhard probably would have believed that the Technocore or that AI would have been part of that Omega point. And then it might be essential in getting humans to get there. So it's an interesting idea that we've seen before in the other Hyperion books where we have kind of the evil side of the Technocore and the benevolent side of the Technocore, the side that cooperates with humans for some kind of progress towards a higher consciousness. And then the the other part that just wants to eliminate humanity and that has no love, I believe. You have the symbiosis that has love between humans and AI, and then you have the symbiosis, well, it's just a parasite, really. There's no symbiote at all. It's just a parasite where there's no love and it eats up humanity. So he's using Teilhard for a really interesting sci-fi idea, kind of trying to experiment. Would Teilhard's idea actually make sense in a in a future? So I think he's using it for a good reason. I think that we won't be able to truly evaluate what he's doing until we 
finish the second book in this duology. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold myself in a suspended state of consider me in Schrodinger's prison with this narrative, and that I don't know if I'm alive with him or if he's just killed me on the way there. (laughs) But this is gonna sound like a deep tangent, but I promise this this fits in. I've been following Chat GPT memes quite a bit, where people give Chat GPT image generator a prompt and then say, make it more X, make it more X, make it more X. And, you know, it's always, you know, it, it always kind of balloons into absurdity. But I saw this one yesterday that I think is actually a interesting bit of anecdotal evidence towards the relevance of this plot. And that is someone said, give me an image of two cavemen fighting. And there's an image and you got two guys wearing animal skins with bones and, you know, they're beating each other over the head. And then they said, make it, give it, give them better technology. And then the next image is them with clubs and they're beating each other. Give them better technology. Now they have spears. Give them better technology. Now they have swords. Give them better technology, guns. And then they have machine guns. And then they have like airplanes duking it out. And then there's like you know, nuclear bombs in the background. And then the next one is one of them has a robotic arm and he's punching the other guy. And then in the one after that, they have primarily like cyborg bodies, basically. But then after that, the one after that is just two robots fighting each other. And, you know, I think the message we're supposed to understand is that the development of technology happens in a way to where the human body itself becomes technologized at a certain point. So it's not like there's humans and there's technology. The two are always in synthesis right back from the moment we stopped hitting each other with bones to the moment that we started hitting each other with clubs. It's just the human body becomes the point of that that technological inflection. So the world of Hyperion here, the machines and the humans are separated. They're divorced. But I get this sense, and maybe the cybrids are a good example of this, that we kind of want a reunification to happen. The natural Tealardian point is for consciousness, you know, the Godhead, to be a resynthesis of humanity and its machines. You know, I can't tell anymore. I thought that's where it was going to. But now I don't feel that way because we've seen the ousters and the ousters is supposed to be this kind of form of salvation because they were the people who were descendants of people, those descendants of humans who still loved art, who still loved music, who still loved paintings. But now in this book, they're giant pterodactyls. I don't know what happened to the ousters. They seem to have in this book been dropped as a viable future. And we see technology there could be a promise of it being together, at least Glaucus thinks that, that it is the path towards the omega point. But we also see the integration of technology on people as we've seen it before with the Bakura, the cruciform, which is attached to people we find out in this book is a gift, like the like the Farcaster portals is a gift from the Technocore. Aenea calls it a quote, Faustian bargain. Because all the church had to do to gain the universe was sell its soul. Now that the church controls life, thanks to the Technocore, Technocore and the church have mastered life because they've made everyone immortal. It's a Faustian bargain. Now you have this, this just like we had with the earlier portals where we were giving AI our computing power with our synapses in our brain. Now we're giving them something by rebirthing again and again and again and again. Being unable to die is somehow a boon for the Technocore. Right now, I'm only seeing 
the very underbelly or the very malicious side of this this pairing of this symbiosis between AI and humans. Well, and again, though, we drew the analogy there between the sort of parasitic cruciform and technocore. But here, there's, you know, the it's not an analogy, it's mm. literally a connection, isn't mm. it? And, the, you know, the Bakura were always just test subjects and so forth. But I think, yeah, I think it's a very interesting sort of angle on it to sort of unify those two things rather than just think it is sort of, you know, a mere analogy. But this sort of parasitic form causes stagnation mm. because these people living longer, there's not really any incentive for them to make radical changes. And, you know, the majority of people do end up converting because they get to the end of their life and kind of like most people start praying, uh, you know, to sort of hedge their bets, Pascal's wager and all that. Mm. In this case, they're literally just saying, oh, fuck it, I will live forever then. But I don't think there's much exploration of like the idea of like living forever or like not being able to die almost as being almost, a, you know, potentially horrifying thing. And if only there were a film we could watch, which would explore that in more detail. But, um, <laughs> I, yeah. I do. Uh, sweet, uh, sweet Dracula call out right there. I do think that what we do get here is a interesting challenge to Christianity or not challenge, but kind of a hypothetical to Christianity. What is Christianity without death? And I think it's not something that Christianity today really thinks about or even considers because taking death off the table isn't really something that anyone's worried about. But the world he gives us here of a deathless Christianity ends up not looking anything like Christianity at all. There's no incentive towards moral behavior. There's no religious feeling. Every Every bit of Christian behavior just boils down to the ethical ramifications in the sense of, why should I behave like a good Christian? Well, if I don't, they'll take the parasite off me and then I'll die the true death. And what does behaving like a good Christian look like? Is it you know a higher moral law that is spiritually given to us? No, it's the laws of the packs. It is the human law. Yeah. It's interesting that Lenahug Hoyt comes to be known as like, pope julius as well oh like as in julius the apostate well i thought it was in julius caesar but okay he was ambitious but this idea of an earthly power rather than you know heavenly power i think it's an interesting inversion i guess on the idea of an afterlife sort of yeah what is christianity without the afterlife without death so check this out. Pope Julius II was head of the Catholic Church and ruler of the Papal States from 1503 to his death in 1513. Nicknamed the Warrior Pope, Battle Pope, or the Fearsome Pope, he chose his papal name not in honor of Pope Julius I, but in emulation of Julius Caesar. Cool. That's <laughs> yeah. a cool Easter egg. That is. There I wish are. I had read that. You know, <laughs> earlier. That's good. So that was a big brain moment on my, my, my part there. I'm quite happy. It feels uh, not exactly an experiment of Christianity. It feels very anti-Christian. So I feel like a Christian, you know, is hoping to eventually go and meet God, to be one again with God, to meet the, kind of, yeah. the ultimate intelligence. Whereas here, that never happens. You're afraid. So you choose Christianity, but you're not really. You're just choosing something that resembles what the old symbol for Christianity resembles. So it's a very fake Christianity. And I, th- I I agree that it seems to be sort of anti-Christianity in a certain way, although not explicitly anti-Christianity, but rather just so very critical of the church, I would say. To me, that also misses as a as a premise because this is science fiction, mm. right? Sort of what ifs, imagine ifs, I feel like they should be related to some genuinely novel idea or at least a, a novel incarnation of it. But here, the sort of idea that, oh, the church isn't really interested in, in Jesus, the church is in love, the church is actually more interested in political power it's like uh, yeah i've heard of like literally roman history and italian history i'm aware (laughs) this is a thing 
thank you though. Like it, it fell flat to me. I think it's I think it's a theological what if. I mean, I think politically he's he's kind of I don't want to say I don't you know yeah yeah I, I, I yeah I won't give him kudos or creativity credits for transplanting you know Roman history into space. It, I mean, it's an idea I haven't seen before. You know, but it, like he doesn't get kudos for that. I think what he gets is kudos for the theological what if. What happens when you remo- remove death from the equation of Christianity? That's, that's interesting to me, but, but, you know, I don't think he necessarily explores it that deeply, if ever at all in this explicitly in this story. Yeah. I'm interested to see what, if there's some sort of connection with taking away death, you know, in this gift that the Technocore gives us this cruciform, which makes us alive, 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 alive. It's kind of like the gift of the Farcasters where we can go anywhere, 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 anywhere. They're two Faustian bargains. But I wonder what is the what were the forecasters really taking away? I guess independence or individuality. It's kind of hard to say exactly what it was taking away. But there's these little different bargains that we keep making, and all of them are wrong. But somehow this other ultimate intelligence is reaching back to us. How are we going to reach up toward it? What does correct use of AI look like? Ania being the one who teaches, she's probably going to teach what that really looks like. It's got to be humans working with AI, and there must be one proper way to do it. And she does exemplify that synthesis, right? She she's she's in contact with the Technocore. So she's she's basically a cybrid without having a consciousness that is artificial. She's she's really exemplifying what the hypothetical Ubermensch of the story is. You know, she is the next human. And that is someone who is, you know, if it was pure Technocore, then it would be, you know, you see the failures of that. If it's pure humans, well, you know, the packs give us the failures of that. But with Ania, we're supposed to understand there's a new way. I think that we just haven't been given yet what exactly that new way is supposed to look like. We've just been given an adventure story that's just a cat and mouse chase for 350 pages (laughs) yeah throughout this as well which really made made explicit at the end of the book there there is there is very much a a romance brewing between roll and demian the nearly 30 year old man of hyperion (laughs) he's like 27 or something and the 12 year old ania which uh you know i thought the lolita angle was maybe in poor taste like he didn't have to do it you know (laughs) nobody asked for it i don't think you know, uh, just leave it to Novikov. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she's, she says, like, towards the end of the book, she's like, Raul and Demian, do you love me? And he's like, oh, yeah, I love you. And she's like, sorry, <laughs> I've gotten stuck in time. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, I feel gosh. like if there's one, you know, if, if Dan Simmons is ever an Icarus, it's him flying too close to the sun of thinking that he can do a Novikov. And, you know, he's going to he's going to burn his wings of wax. and He's going to come crashing down into the into the <laughs> sea if he keeps playing with this idea. It was acceptable in the 1700s. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have you know, you know, I just wanted to pick out one thing about how I thought this book. I don't want to say it could have been better, but I think I, I kind of want to leave it on a positive note about Dan Simmons because I'm rooting for him in, in a weird way. I think that he I mean, I think he's a worksman. I think he's a craftsman. I think that he doesn't always have the inspiration. But I, there's there's certain moments in this book, and this is going to be a longer thing, but there's certain moments in this book where I ask myself, how would Hemingway write this? So I'm going to give you my Hemingway sentence, and then I'm going to give you my Dan Simmons sentence. Hemingway. Father Captain DeSoya felt amazed to be with these powerful people. The crowd below was silent. 
the cathedral and its works of art moved him to tears. You know, not a whole lot happened in those three sentences. In fact, I would even argue nothing happened in those three sentences. Here's how Dan Simmons writes it. To Father Captain DeSoya, the presence of these two powerful people is no more surprising or astounding than the sunlight on the facade above him as the four climbed the broad steps to the basilica. The crowd, already quiet, still to silence as they file through the vast space, walk past more Swiss guards in both ornamental and battle dress and move into the nave. Here, even the silence echoes, and DeSoya is moved to tears at the beauty of the great space and of the timeless works of art they pass on the way to the pews. Michael Angelo's Pieta, visible in the first chapel to the right, Arnolfo de Cambrio's ancient bronze of St. Peter, its right foot polished to the point of being worn away by centuries of kisses, and lit brilliantly from beneath, the striking figure of Guiano Falcarini's Santa Vergini, sculpted by Pietro Campi in the 16th century, more than 1500 years earlier. So he doesn't have to do this. Like, this is a choice he's doing, and I, I respect him for for choosing this choice as like a proof of concept that it can be done. Yeah. He can write a good sentence. He can write a good sentence and he can really make what's happening very clear. I did not care that Rawl is going to be eaten by these giant lamp fish. Rainbow sharks, but Rainbow sharks, but it's very clear what's happening. The writing is giving my brain what he was probably envisioning, but it does feel about as nutritious as playing a game. So he is kind of creating a game that I'm just watching while I'm turning the pages. Impressive in a way. And what you want if you want an adventure novel. I actually thought that shark scene was one of the few moments of true inspiration in this story. When he's getting eaten by sharks and he starts thinking about how he starts thinking about like the justness of a universe created by God where pain and kind of like absurd violence is baked into the ontological reality of that universe that God creates with reference to Charles Darwin kind of losing his faith over a certain wasp that lays its eggs inside of a caterpillar and then the eggs hatch and the the wasp eats its way out of the caterpillar before bursting through its chest alien style that was enough to make Charles Darwin lose his faith and and we get this character thinking about that as he's getting munched on by sharks I thought that was that was good. That was good, Dan Simmons. Sounds like a plug for our Nosferatu episode, directed by Werner Herzog. All right. I look into the jungle and I just see death. <laughs> Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>